You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Our Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. First, Happy New Year for those that are celebrating New Year around the world, uh, 2023. I just wanted to do a quick intro to reset uh, the Red Panda episode that we did way back in June 2020. The reason we're re-releasing this one is we wanted to start the year off right, and I have an incredible interview coming in a couple days with Sonam Lama, who is a conservation manager for the Red Panda Network, and he is also a Whitley Award winner, which is massive. The Whitley Awards, I know last year in 2021, we interviewed some of their winners, and these are conservation rock stars, heroes of mine and Angie's out there on the ground saving these animals, and Sonam, is, is he is a rock star of the Red Panda world. He has been with the Red Panda Network since its inception. He is out there fighting to save this species. And because they the red pandas are so endangered, the work he's doing is so important. And so we wanted to release the species again before the interview that's coming to you in a couple days. And then for some of you that had listened to the Swan episode, you may remember that I am actually getting married uh, to my beautiful partner, Pippa. So I'm actually leaving here in a few hours as I record this and get everything set to release. Heading over to Australia, so I'm excited to see my friends over there. Hopefully get to go to a few of your zoos. I'm going to be up in the Brisbane area. And when this releases, I'll actually be a married man. So uh, we wanted to reset this to start the year off right. And I will be doing some research over there because we've got some incredible species coming next month. Uh, the one right after this is, is pretty spectacular. And then we have a special episode coming up after that for a, a special young man who listens to the podcast, is inspired by the podcast. And so uh, he reached out and we're going to dedicate an episode 
uh, for a special animal over there in Australia. So anyways, enjoy this episode uh, reboot of The Red Panda. And please, please, please listen to the interview with Sonam Lama and check out The Red Panda Network. Just incredible, incredible work that they're doing. So take care and enjoy. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Zoos have had a lot of trouble breeding red pandas. Again, because the population can be as low as 2,500 in the wild. The Knoxville Zoo is actually one of the best. What can they teach us? Correct. Yeah, definitely peer-reviewed research has shown that, yes, if the local uh, communities don't buy in, it's not going to work. And, uh, and then also getting the youth involved. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. I am really trying to think of the last time I saw a red panda. I'm thinking it was New Zealand at the Auckland Zoo in December. I think that's the last one I saw. Well... We all need more red pandas in our life. That's I the, know. That's the uh, short version of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end. <laughs> yes. Uh, but Chris, you're right. They definitely are a favorite species at a lot of accredited zoological institutions across the world. There's mm-hmm. several in North America and in Europe. So I was lucky enough that they were at the Lincoln Park Zoo when I worked there and I've And I've spent hours and hours watching the red pandas at the Central Park Zoo in New York City. So, yes, they're they're always a favorite, and they're just so stinking cute. Oh, they are. They are. And I know I I actually saw at two zoos because when I, you know, since the pandemic, it's like all poor all the poor zoos have been shut down. So, haven't been able to go to some of my favorites, you know, in L.A. or San Diego, but. I did go to the the Hamilton Zoo had them too, so I saw I saw them twice within uh, the the same week. So went to both zoos there. So shout out to Jesse down there in New Zealand. You know he's uh, out there taking care of them. Yes, uh, and I want to give a big thanks and shout out to a dear friend of mine, a keeper friend, Jill Dignan, who I worked with for years at the Lincoln Park Zoo, and she is kind enough to be sharing one of her amazing photos that she took of Clark, a red panda that was at the Lincoln Park Zoo for a while. And also this photo is amazing. It landed on the cover of last year's August AAZK Forum. So it's American Association of Zookeepers, which is an awesome and prestigious journal for all the zookeepers out there. And so kudos to her to getting her article in there and for having her photo on the cover. And she was nice enough to share it with us. And of course, uh, preparing for this episode, her and I were going back and forth. I was talking red pandas with her so <laughs> i know I, they're uh they're they are a favorite i i just it's not only are they so dang cute angie i just think when you think of red pandas you're like where do they fit in you know are they a panda right or a raccoon with that right. with that ring tail with a ring striped tail yes and I chris know. you'll be so proud of me i've uh, grown throughout this podcast that's why i love this uh <laughs> this uh show that we do because i really dorked out on their evolution i Good. think Good. i probably have like five slides 
<laughs> five yes. slides to help answer that question and yes, read okay, some good, good, good. yeah read some uh newer articles have been released with their dna mm-hmm. and data and things good. like that but yeah, yeah yeah so that'll be a fun section for me because usually when you do evolution i just kind of sit back and drink my coffee but hopefully i'll be a i'll be an active participant on that good and, uh, oh i know i dorked out on some of this stuff too so yeah. that's gonna be a good good part that's yeah and of course, it was super easy to convince you to do red pandas. It wasn't a hard oh, yeah. a hard pull yeah. at all. But for me in particular, there's a special red panda named Toby that played a very critical part in my life. And okay. so I'll have to dedicate uh, this episode to him. When I was a young keeper uh, at the zoo, I, of course, worked, worked with anything with hoofs, horns, and antlers, mm-hmm. a.k.a. not red pandas. Right. But uh, John, my husband, he he worked with the red pandas and lions and tigers and all sorts of uh, big creatures. And we had just started dating. And he brought me over to the red panda area where he introduced me behind the scenes, very close and personal, of course, through protective contact. Yeah, but he introduced me to Mr. Toby. And Mr. Toby was the cutest red panda you had ever seen. And I <laughs> and uh, John let me feed him red grapes, which was just darling. And Chris, I have to tell you, it's in that moment that I instantly fell in love with Toby. Yeah. Oh, not John. No. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, John better not listen to this podcast. Well, no, he knows. He had to work very hard for it. So it was, I mean, I, I will tell you, Letting your girlfriend feed a red panda grapes yeah. up close and personal scored him some serious points. Let's let's okay. be real. Yeah, but yeah. no, it was Toby that I fell in love with and uh, just wanted to learn more about the species and what was going on with their conservation story. And so that's where that's where my love started for them. And I'm glad that I get to to share that with everybody on the podcast today. And and then yes, of course, John and I, we had a, a nice little story after that as well. But I was talking <laughs> with John last night reminiscing yeah. about Toby and uh, and mm-hmm. when we were kids dating back at back in the zoo. And uh he he reminded me that they love Toby so much, but he had the cutest face and he was very proper. Mm-hmm. So they thought that he looked like a little English guy. And so whenever him and Jill and some of the other keepers would talk about Toby, they thought he had an English accent. So they yep. would, his voice, whenever <laughs> they would talk about him, they would do these English accents. So anyways, it's just. That and, just and they're nowhere near England. No, <laughs> they're no. Near uh, well, some fossils have been found there and we'll talk about that. Okay. But but yes, no, they're nowhere no, but they just he just looks so prim and proper. He was just he was just a cute little English guy. And and it also just goes to show how much zookeepers they work with their animals on a daily basis, like how they really know their personalities and they relate Mm -hmm. to them and then they have fun with them. And yes, it's uh but red pandas are easy to fall in love with. Yeah. No, they got an amazing story. I didn't realize how endangered they were. Mm -hmm. They're they're endangered, they're classified as endangered. We're gonna talk about that. Yeah, they, well, in just the yeah. past 20 years. And so these stories I'm telling you are from mm-hmm. like 10 years ago. So yeah. in the past 20 years, their populations declined by about 50%. And mm-hmm. yeah, they're in danger. Yeah, they're they, well. The counts are hard to do. We'll talk about that because they're kind of a nocturnal species and they live in elevated forests and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think the guesstimate is less than 10,000. Yeah. 
animals and that's on the high end. I mean, cause I think the ICU yeah. and did their last count in like 2015. Yeah. And the low end was like 2,500. Yeah. It's nothing. That's yeah. nothing. That's nothing. Yeah. So they're really endangered and, and just, you know, interesting story. And then just some, some final shout outs. You know, I have to give shout outs to how we, we had some new Patreon subscribers this week. We, we, we caught fire with the Jessica and Steven. Thank you. Bryce, Sabrina and Elizabeth. So we had, uh, that's five people join us this week. on. That's Patreon, amazing. So. Awesome. I know it was a big week. Thank you so much. Yeah. So we'll you be know, releasing just, some new content just for you guys here real soon. Yeah. We just talked about that, you know, how we're going to kind of adjust with our Patreon, you know, it just, you know, you're supporting free education. We just gave money to global conservation force and, you know, our new poll is going to be coming out here in the next week or so for who we give money out for this next round. And, you know, it's just, it, it helps us keep going and spreading this message. So thank you. And then really quick, you know, I want to dedicate this, this episode to Josh, uh, who sent us an email this week. And again, this is, it, it's just so wonderful that people around the world that are hearing us and listening to us, changing what they're doing. You know, we, we had um, Zuki, I think was her name, I, you know, forgive me for getting it wrong, but we did Raccoon Dog. You know, she's studying in Japan and is going to work in animal conservation. So she told us to do raccoon dog. Josh has switched his major now and, and he's going to now major in digital cinema and minor in zoology. So Yay! he wants to make, zoology. I know he wants to make document mm -hmm. documentaries promoting wildlife conservation. So Josh, thank you. Thank you for the, uh, the email and we got your list. We did do pangolins. But uh, one of those on your list, we're going to do really soon. I promise you. I promise yes, you. the FASA for sure. I, uh, yeah. Oh well, she just gave it up. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. It's an amazing suggestion. So yeah, yeah. And once again, too, if you can donate to Patreon, I understand, especially in these times, there's a lot of hardships. Uh, so yeah, just give us a five star ratings on iTunes, uh, uh, and then if you have a few extra minutes, if you can write a little bit of uh, words of praise. That would be awesome. And so I want to say thank you to Sabrina Camp. Wrote us a wonderful uh, review on iTunes. She's her 200th? Uh, we, we're, we're at 201 now. So yeah. Okay. I'm, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sabrina, thank you. And then L rank one, two, three also okay. gave us some beautiful words and, and those really inspire Chris and I to keep going. I know when it's late at night and I'm tired and I just remember all those kind things you say. And so I keep diving deeper into the literature yeah. for you all. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. And Mike did say he gave us a five-star review like months ago. Okay. Like, Where's the trust man? I was like, okay. okay. <laughs> My buddy, Mike from LA Zoo. <laughs> he just always wants me to say his name every week. Love him. I cannot wait till the zoos open back up. Oh my goodness. Got to go see my animals. All right. So let's describe these red pandas. Because Darling. Cute. Oh yeah. I mean, Case closed. <laughs> large round heads. I mean, size of a cat. I mean, you know, I've got the sizes, but so you're talking, you know, puffy house cat size, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're weighing. Okay. I'll do, I'll do the sizes. You do the coloring. They can weigh up to 13 pounds or six and a half kilograms. Uh, 24, so that's two feet in length or 60 centimeters. And then their tail is pretty long, an 18-inch tail or 47 centimeters. Yeah. So they're before, long and just poofy. 
Yeah, and before yeah. I describe their face, just in general, they have a long, they have long, soft, reddish brown, maybe orange tints, uh, fur on the upper parts of the body, and then a lot of them have blackish fur on the lower parts on their mm-hmm. legs, and. And then their faces are just very distinctive with white markings, tear markings, uh, similar to those of a raccoon. But Chris, their face is where it's at. That's where the extra amazing cuteness happens. And that's because they have white high points or markings on their face, similar to that of a raccoon. They're going to have white eyebrow-like teardrops above their eyes. They have a white muzzle, a little white cheek. Like if you're going to put blush on, if you're a woman, they have a little white right there. And then their ears are often rimmed in white outer fur. And these markings can be distinct for each animal. And of course, Mm -hmm. depending on where they live and what subspecies they are, they might be a little bit lighter, a little bit darker in color. But they're just darling. And then their tail is the poof tail that you've all dreamed about. And it is ringed somewhat like a raccoon, but the rings are more subtle from like a dark orange to a little bit lighter orange. And once again, that's going to vary depending on the animal itself. But yeah, it just, and it has a face similar to a raccoon with a black nose and the, and mm-hmm. the whiskers. And just, they, I mean, if you don't, if you're not familiar with what they look like, go to you our show to notes. You yeah, to. you. I mean, they are just. And then I, I spent a fair amount of time not really researching, just watching videos of them walking around their enclosures or up in trees, or just being darling sleeping. We're gonna learn mm-hmm. in uh, the behavior section that they sleep a lot, like giant pandas. So. Mm-hmm. There's darling pictures of them just sleeping in trees, and uh, yeah, they're amazing. I mean, you know, it's like it, that's why they they've been called the Himalayan raccoon, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or a cat bear, or a lesser panda, or a bear cat, or a fox bear, or Firefox. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so funny you mentioned that. that. This yeah, is just—I yeah. promise I'll stop telling John stories, but he really is such yeah. a, char- a character. I can't control myself. So I was reading and I learned, like, the hint that you just gave, Mm -hmm. the internet browser, Mm -hmm. Firefox, Mm -hmm. has been said to be named after the Red Panda, because that's a nickname. I thought it was a fox. I thought it was a fox, fox. too. So I say to John, hey, honey, this is like, of course, last night at like midnight, hey, Mm -hmm. did you know this? Did you know that Firefox was a Red Panda? And he says, oh, yeah, of course. And I, so I'm like, yeah, right. Like, how, yeah, why? Uh-huh. That's so random. Why would you know that? And he's so funny. He looks at me and he, like he has this deadpan face. He's just like, he's like, he's like, come on. I'm a zoo guy and an IT guy. I know these things. <laughs> because interestingly enough, for yeah, people listening, yeah. uh, John's career before he became an animal keeper was mm-hmm. in IT. So mm-hmm. he fixed computers way back in the day. And, didn't necessarily love it. And then he got a call from a professor he made a connection with back in his college. A biology mm-hmm. professor said, Hey, I need this intern to do a hippo thing at, That's right. uh, That's right. at Bush Gardens. Yeah. It doesn't pay yeah. very much. And he, and he was making yeah. decent money in IT and he went for it. He took that, he took that risk. And so long story short, 20 years later, he uh 
He, you know, he's running the zoo. Well, and he knows what that a Firefox was a, a red panda. <laughs> I didn't know that. I know, I know. it's a red panda. There you go. It's like, geez. There you go. But what I found was super cool is that um, the the company Mozilla. I don't know if that's how you say it, mm-hmm. but uh, they actually uh, put their money where their mouth was, and they adopted two baby red pandas at the Knoxville Zoo in Tennessee. And the Knoxville Zoo is uh, highlighted as one of the um, AZA institutions in North America that is, uh, has a really incredible breeding program and have, oh. and have produced it's like a lot of cubs. It's one of the best cubs. in the world, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the mm-hmm. best in the world, yeah. So. yeah they're, they're amazing. And, and it, it's interesting because zoos have had a lot of trouble breeding red pandas. Again, because the population can be as low as 2,500 in the wild. The Knoxville Zoo is actually one of the best in the world, and I've known that for years uh, for breeding red pandas. And that's probably just based on, you know, where they are. They thought it was a temperature thing because looking at where red pandas range from, they go from northern Myanmar to into China. So you're into West Sushan or Yunnan provinces, and then they go across Nepal, India and Tibet. So really the temperate forces of the Himalayas, where they range, they range anywhere from 7,000 to 15,000 feet or 2,000 to almost 5,000 meters in altitude. So they're in, the, in that, that high altitude range. So again, like Angie's saying, it's hard to do studies on them because they are in some of these harder to reach areas. And they're and they, in know, trees and things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they're in these deciduous or conifer forests. And, you know, we're going to talk about their diet, but just looking for bamboo, you know, like their not really related cousin, the giant panda. You know, we'll <laughs> oh, you to. already gave it a we'll spoiler alert. Come back. Well, I mean, they're, they're related. We're all, we're related to pandas. That's you know, right. We all are. <laughs> we all, we're all related we at go some back, point. Go back far enough. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they are related to pandas. It's just, you, you'll be surprised where. Um, but. You know, besides being adorable, Angie, why, I, I, I mean, ugh, red pandas are just amazing, but why else, why care? Like, why care about this certain species, this incredibly unique species? Well, Chris, they're definitely a symbol of healthy ecosystems. So if you find red pandas, you're going to find healthy forests and really in-depth ecosystems that are all functioning properly. And wherever those are, you're going to find people that have sustainable livelihoods. So it's a really good example of what can work in certain places. And their diet isn't strictly bamboo like giant pandas. They do eat some berries and things like that, obviously, red grapes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like mm-hmm, I fed Toby. Mm-hmm. No, uh, they're not eating those in the wild. But they 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 do like a little they have a little sweet tooth, and so they can also disperse seeds. But but yeah, they're just a really important symbol of needing healthy forest. Period. And when we get to conservation, we'll talk about several areas in China and Nepal and India where they are protected and have protected ranges and things like that. And yeah, Chris, so most of the regions where they live, they are definitely love and adorn. And there's even an, an important economic tourism impact that they're making in several areas where you can go see them and things like that. So you know, they're definitely a species that are on people, people's radar 
but mm-hmm. not out of the woods yet or not out of no, out of trouble no, no. yet just because uh, they do need healthy healthy forests and it harkens back to my interview with Sonarto about Sumatran tigers where he said save a tiger save yourself mm-hmm. and I think the red pandas may be similar to that because they're just such a symbol besides cuteness of course of yes, yes. just of a healthy a healthy forest that they live in healthy and abundant oh yeah no, absolutely. And I mean, it's just, you know, I'll jump ahead to evolution. We'll get back to it. But they're the only species in their taxonomic family. Yeah. So they, they're a they living fossil. A living, That's why I started Yeah, a living relic. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I hate to be a person that needs like big, powerful statements, you know, uh, to, know. to be attracted yeah. to. But for me, for evolution, because it's not my main area of uh of uh, study and interest. But when I read that, I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, I need to know more. Yeah. I need to know more. Yeah. And yeah, they, they're they one of these edge groups uh, where they, yeah, they don't have, like they're the last of their family group, right? They're kind. Yeah, they're yeah. kind. Yeah, basically. Yeah, and then I have a quote. It was Dr. Angela Glatson, and she's the uh, manages the Red Panda Global Species Management Plan and president of Red Panda. She said, quote, losing red pandas to extinction would be like losing the whole cat family from lions to domestic cats, all of them gone, tigers, everything, leopards, boom. That's like what's left. That's red panda. They're that unique, you know, that they're. So put in that perspective, you're like, oh, gosh, yeah. 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 I just got goosebumps, but not really in the good way. Kind of in the. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's wow. interesting when you put it in that perspective, how, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. how they're the last. Super unique. Now, in that sense, Angie, I've been talking a lot about biodiversity, habitat destruction. Well, I'm going to give you some conservation optimism this week. Yay. Some we need news. that. Yes, I we know. Need I know. We need that in our lives. Especially like, now. <laughs> right like... now, all day long, <laughs> up and down the river. Yes, Yes, yes. And so I was really curious because I remember I brought this up, oh, ages ago when we did something near Nepal. And I talked about how Nepal was like very successful with snow leopards, locals buying into preserving snow leopards for ecotourism and these other things. So I was like, okay, you know, what what exactly is going on in Nepal? And I'll tell you, they have become a model for countries around the world. They, I believe, things that they have implemented should be implemented worldwide. In Bhutan, many, too, many right? Countries. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but you know, I, I looked at specifically Nepal and their government, and this all started in the early 70s, way back before we were born, <clears throat> you know, when uh, <laughs> our parents were, were born. No, so you know, it started way back in the 70s. And it started with this concept because I kept looking at Nepal conservation, and it kept popping up on this community forestry. And so I'm going to cover that in a minute. It's a very interesting concept. But their government came together and said, okay, we're going to focus on conservation. We have some very unique biomes. We have very unique animals. So we need to help preserve them. So their first focus was their national parks, where they were working on conserving tigers and rhinos. Now, that has hugely expanded since then, you know, but that was the beginning. They have collaborated with international NGOs, local NGOs, local communities to help curb poaching and illegal wildlife trade. 
it's just it's become one of the the world's best examples of of how a country can do wildlife conservation. So where it all started, this you know, and, and I just really quickly just want to cover it. It's community forestry. I just thought it was so interesting because the government saw their forests and their Himalayan slopes were degrading quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the people weren't, you know, taking care. Well, it was government owned it all, right? So the people really weren't, didn't take any ownership of it. And so they sure. were just exploiting, cutting down trees, getting all the things they needed. And the government was supposed to take care of the forests. And I guess it was overwhelming. They couldn't do it. And so there's just all these slopes were degrading. So what they did is the government decentralized and put local communities directly in control of their forests and the habitat surrounding that. And basically the people have formed these communities, these forest communities, where they have now managed the forest. They go in and get wood for fuel or timber or fodder, you know, getting plants and stuff for their livestock. And it has actually helped the communities grow and economically grow. And the forests have been regenerating and the land has been regenerating itself because the people, I think they're finding there's so many, you know, different studies looking at this, but the people are invested in it and invested in the health of the ecosystem. And so it, it, it's working. So biodiversity is returning and it's just it's just a great example of local communities taking ownership of their their wildlife and their their ecosystems around there. So that has been a big one. Yeah. Other, yeah, that one's cool. I mean, it was cool. You know, you think about it because especially for the red panda, that is their primary in Nepal, you know, their primary habitat. Mm-hmm. So we need to preserve that. Other things Nepal has been doing, you will like this. Community-based anti-poaching units. So they have that around the country, especially like snow leopards was a big one. And they're using youth, voluntary associations of youth that are are helping a man or woman like be participants in this anti-poaching unit. So what they're saying is there's they have over 400 of these units around Nepal mostly young folks, you know, women, mm-hmm. men and women. And they said, when you get the youth involved, so this made me think of, uh, you know, the, the, the All Creatures Kids podcast, getting the yeah. youth involved. Of course, I that, love it. Yeah, they're more motivated. Send me your kids, kids, folks. I want to yes. interview them about animals. <laughs> yes, send me your kids. But when you make the the young young generation aware, it motivates them and, and just pivotal pivotal in conservation. So just to kind of quote this article I was, I was reading, it just said, Nepal has a beautiful message for the world. Uh, Do not let the local community be isolated from conservation strategies, but instead let them enjoy the benefits of conservation following the principles of sustainability. So you engage these local communities, make, make them stakeholders and help them develop agendas and conservation schemes and you're going to see results like what's going on in Nepal. And so now that means the existence of over near 650 one-horned rhinos, almost 200 Bengal tigers, hundreds or a couple thousand Asiatic elephants, gaur, red pandas, 
you know, all of these animals are benefiting from the efforts in Nepal. And I just thought there's more to dig in there. I mean, that's a whole hour long conversation. Sure. Yeah. We should try to get somebody from there to talk to us about it because. Oh yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and just for me, it's obviously very simple and, but looking at some of the national parks in the areas where these red pandas live, when I was uh, doing research for this pod, I just was, it was so beautiful. I, I, I was like, that's where I need to be right now. Like that's where I want to live. And I I have not, I have not been to Nepal, um, but my dear friend Cassie actually did a study abroad uh, there many years ago where she lived with a a family and and studied and learned a lot about uh, Nepal and their culture and just, she Mm -hmm. loved it. So it's Mm -hmm. on my bucket list and definitely reviewing some of these parks was just, I just felt really connected and, after hearing everything you just told me, I'm like, oh, it's like full circle. It makes sense. They really well, are. And, and we've talked about this getting, mm-hmm. you know, you and I, even many of our interviews, talking to some of the experts we've talked about, conservation so complex. So complex. But yeah. getting the locals buy-in is critical. Like it won't work. Correct. Right? Yeah. Definitely peer-reviewed research has shown that, yes, if the local uh, communities don't buy in, it's not going to work. And uh, and then also getting the youth involved. Uh, because a really cool study once showed that like youth in an area that has maybe red pandas or – I believe the study was actually out of Kenya where local communities – the, the children, they would ask them, what's, you know, what's a endangered species or what's a rare species? And a lot mm-hmm. of the kids were putting – different either antelopes or lions that's what they were checking off the the boxes and nobody was putting the grevy zebra which is mm-hmm. really endangered really and endangered, re- yeah. only found pretty much in uh, Kenya and little maybe little parts of Ethiopia and there's mm-hmm. 1 to 2000 maybe 3000 left and so that was their unique endangered animals but the kids didn't see it as endangered or unique because they actually see them all the time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So that's where the NGOs or start explaining to them, like, no, no, no. Actually, in our in our country, the lion is doing well, and the antelope are doing really well. It's the zebra in our community, this special, unique species of zebra, the gravy zebra, that's really, uh, really endangered. And so once mm-hmm. they explain that to the kids, that like you're very blessed, like you're the only kids in the world that get to see these zebras. See this, yeah, yeah. They were able to take ownership and then understand a little bit more how special they were. And um, and then, of course, uh, Lewa and some of those areas in Kenya have uh, done uh, done pretty well. And then so areas like Lewa um, have have done have done a good job of integrating the community. And then they're working really hard to help save the grubby zebra, which is another pod for another day. I promise. Yeah. I promise. Oh, folks. yeah. That's the last pod we ever do. I, no, it probably won't be. I'm, I'm actually itching, <laughs> chomping at the bit. Okay. Um, however, I will say studying red pandas this week kind of made zebras fall to the wayside as far as my love goes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, they're just, uh, they're just such a unique animal. I mean. Hey there, fellow super moms. This is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. Are you juggling a million things at once like me? Between work and podcast deadlines, after school sports, taking care of the kids, and of course, all of our pets, finding time to cook nutritious lunches and dinners can feel like an impossible mission in my house. But guess what? I've found the ultimate lifesaver, Factor. 
Picture this, delicious chef-crafted meals delivered right to your doorstep, ready to heat and eat whenever you need them. No more stressing about what to cook or spending hours in the kitchen. With over 35 mouth-watering options each week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and more, Factor has something for everyone in the family. My husband and I are loving the vegan options, and we are also enjoying their amazing add-ons, from snacks to yummy smoothies. Factor isn't just convenient, it's budget-friendly too. So say goodbye to expensive takeout, because Factor meals are dietitian approved and cost less than dining out. Plus, you can customize your plan to fit your busy schedule and pause or reschedule deliveries whenever you need to. And the best part? Zero prep, zero mess. Just pop a meal in the microwave and boom, lunch or dinner is served. So choose Factor because every supermom like you deserves a break from meal planning without compromising taste and health. And we all need more quality time with the creatures we love. Head to factormeals.com slash creatures50 and use code creatures50 to get 50% off. That's code creatures50 at factormeals.com slash creatures50 to get 50% off. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Yeah, jump into evolution. I'm excited to hear what you found because I, I went down a rabbit hole too. It This was the original panda. You know that. When they just had an animal named panda, this was it. Yes. For 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. And then we got the giant panda or panda bears. But very similar, which is going to be cool. That's the rabbit hole I went down because red pandas are a true carnivore like giant pandas. But... They eat bamboo. Yeah. Like what? The heck? Like what? I didn't. What? Yes. What? Yes. Where did these things come from? And Where one of the reasons besides the families that they're closest related to being the giant panda and raccoons, they fall somewhere in the middle, uh, is that they really do have a true carnivore digestive system, which mm-hmm. which consists basically of a simple stomach and a short intestines. And having this short digestive tract is basically good for normal carnivores like cats and bears and things like that because they readily absorb the nutrients they need from meat and poop it out. Uh, yep. But when you're eating bamboo, bamboo. and other, other plant material, it needs to stay in your digestive system longer, theoretically, like a horse. A horse and a cow have mm. very different but mm-hmm. a lot more going on yeah. as far as length in their intestinal tract to do all the things that they need to do to get the nutrients that they need from plant material. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that makes them goofy for sure. It definitely they're yeah. basically described as like a carnivore that's an herbivore, which is yeah, 
bizarre. It's crazy. Yeah, it's just crazy. Like when we covered pandas, I was like, are you kidding me? And gi- yeah, it's giant just- pandas are the same way. And so that's what mm-hmm. that's, that's so interesting about their evolution is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're not. Well, okay. So red pandas were first described as members of Procyninidae, which is a raccoon family. This is back in the 1800s. But it was controversial. But, you know, morphological similarities. That's how they were classifying animals back in the day. Dent, you know, teeth, the ring tail, the, the head, all very similar. Like, okay, that's why they called it the Himalayan raccoon. But then they did some DNA, early DNA studies, and said, no, oh, maybe they're more related to bears, Ursidae. And then uh, some more DNA research has said, no, no, these things are in their own. So they're their own family, the Aelurdae, A-I-L-U-R-A-Dae, day. And recent molecular phylogenetic studies. Well, in 2020. Shows, yes. Mm-hmm. Shows that red pandas are very ancient species. In carnivores, the super family Mustelodae, which is the mustelids, our favorites. Well, mustelids are part of it, but weasels, raccoons, and skunks. So it's like almost full circle, right? They actually kind of are more related to raccoons, even though they're not in that family. They're in the super family, right? The, mm-hmm. the big overreaching family way back in the in the tree, which I'm going to get to. So the super family Mustelodae. Has our, our favorite, the must, still my favorite. I, I just, mustelids <laughs> are just, honey, I go back to Honey Badger. I'm sorry. Just my favorite. Honey Badger but, don't care. Mm-mm. No, but even weasels and the oh, black-footed ferrets, tap, tap, tap. I'll never, ever, ever forget that episode. <laughs> just tap. Yeah, black-footed ferrets. Dog. Your BFF is a fun one. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a fun one. Okay. Uh, Prostinidae, which is our raccoons, coatis, which we have to do coatis at some t- point. Others. And then Mephididae, which, what is a stink badger? Skunks and stink badgers. (laughs) That's why we do this podcast, Chris. (laughs) All right. Somebody out there knows what a stink badger is. Uh, We will find out because now I'm really curious of what a stink badger is. So red pandas are, are part of that super family, but really they're their own family. Very unique species. They diverged, Angie. I don't know. Did you get the years? How far ago they diverged from panda bears? It was like five million years ago. No, forty-three million years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So forty-three million years ago, red pandas and panda bears diverged. Then red pandas diverged from weasels around forty million years ago. So I got a fun question, real quick, Angie. Before I I go down the rabbit hole, I went down. Okay, so Ursidae and the super family of mustelids, Mustelloridae. Okay. There's a there's a family of animals that are in between that that the red panda is more closely related. I, I'm going to see if you could remember that. I'm looking at a bootstrap tree they did with genetics. And Ooh. it's it's a it's a it's a species that's related to Ursidae that pops up every every now and then and we're like, "Oh my goodness, I keep forgetting that fact." Well, Chris, I know it's not the zebra, so no, we know that. No, we no, know that. No, 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 no. Um, 
And I did come across it. I did so much reading last night. Oh, geez. It was. It's not a land animal. How about that? Oh, okay. Then that's a different route. Um, yeah. Well. Ursidae. Mm. These things are related, kind of related to. Well, like Ursa. dolphins. Go back to myosis. Eh, not dolphins. Whales. No, not whales. There's another <laughs> mammal that swims to the ocean. Seals. <laughs> yes. Seals. Yeah, oh, goodness okay. gracious. I got to drink some more coffee. It's early in the morning here. Yes, yeah. No, I don't know if I so, came across that piece of data. I was thinking of something else. Sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. So bears, Ursidae, and the right. are kind of close. Yeah, I know. We always yeah. forget it. Yeah. And then it comes back up to haunt us. We're like, oh my gosh, I always forget that fact. You know, it's like what hippos, what, what are hippos mostly re- closely related to? Yeah. That was the sea creature. That was, uh, yeah. The, the dolphins whales, like, or whales. Yeah. In whales. Yeah. Yeah. Cetaceans. So anyways, mm-hmm. Cetaceans. Cetaceans. Okay. Angie, so what I, where I went down, oh my goodness. And I'll make this quick because I don't want to bore people because I remember God, one of our first episodes I was talking about uh, DNA. But uh, I went through mitochondrial DNA, not just yes, any yes, DNA, mind you. It's mitochondrial DNA is awesome. Okay. How are red pandas and giant pandas so similar, but so far apart on the evolutionary tree? And it was something. Well, you the researchers, yeah. Ago. I mean, I think it, they originally, of course, they thought it was, they were related, but yes, mm-hmm. it definitely has a lot to do with convergent evolution. That they both mm-hmm. went down these bizarre routes of being carnivores that eat bamboo, which we'll talk a lot in nutrition about how bamboo is not the greatest thing to eat because, well, no. there's not a lot of energy that you can gather from mm-hmm. it and you have to eat a lot of it and um, you don't get a lot of energy so you're tired all the time to begin with. So yeah, they, they went down these very similar routes completely separate. Mm-hmm. It's all environmental, yeah. Well, and of course, I dorked out about the nutrition because just every time I read about giant pandas or red pandas and their digestive system, it's just a different podcast Mm -hmm, for a different mm -hmm. day. But, and probably for a very small select group of people. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But no, where I went this time, and I don't think we talked too, too much about it in uh, giant pandas, but is there extra opposable thumb-like grip thing that's yeah. so not science the grip thing please don't quote me on that well pseudo thumbs I mean, <laughs> pseudo, thank you that's why that's why but you're a good podcast partner how in the heck do they both have it correct yes and so <laughs> that's, that's it doesn't make happened. any sense no they they both they both separately convergently mm-hmm. but that's the paper i was reading late last night out of nature oh, and okay. it was called how the panda's thumb evolved twice Okay. And yeah. it's by Jane Koo, and I think it's from 2017. And yeah, it's just really, really interesting because they're such distinct species, and they both have this thumb. And really quickly, letting my anatomy self dork out for a second, this thumb is basically, yeah, they basically have the five digits like I guess we have, more or less. Mm-hmm. And then they have an enormously enlarged wrist bone, so a carpal bone, that is remarkably uh, dexterous and allows them mm-hmm. to grip and handle the bamboo. And it's considered, yeah, like an extra digit, if you will, or a false thumb, like you mentioned, a pseudo thumb. 
So pretty cool stuff. But the researchers did uh, some DNA analysis and found, I won't mention the genes, but looked into genes that are important for thumb and limb development and found similar mutations on um, these limb development genes for both the giant panda and the red panda. But what's really cool, Chris, is it was kind of always thought that this false thumb was to help them grip the bamboo to hold on to it so they can strip it. And we'll talk about that nutrition, mm-hmm. what parts mm-hmm. of the bamboo are more more nutritious. But what researchers now think is that obviously convergent evolution happened. They both got this thumb. But they think that the red panda false thumb was actually maybe more for climbing. And then mm-hmm. became a benefit of gripping the bamboo, bamboo where yeah. they believe for the giant panda, the thumb was evolved straight up for gripping bamboo. 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 And of course, we'll never probably fully know. Um, but no, but no. yeah, but it's, but but it's the this, fact that they both they bo- the similar in- mutations and similar limb development yes. genes, different times, different species. Mm-hmm. Science is so cool. Evolution it, is so and cool. It it keeps going. It keeps going because the the article I read that I talked. Oh my out god, on, we're such dorks. I'm sorry to our I listeners. Know. No, they love this stuff. I they hope, love it. I you gotta love science. Love science. You know, this is how we 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 learn and how actually it does affect conservation because we understand them better. Then we can understand what strategies to implement. So you know, excuse us while we have our little <laughs> dorky science moments, <laughs> but. This was out of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS, which is a, a top, top journal. Oh, that's right a under, good one. Right under nature. Yeah. yeah. So it might have been, I don't know if it's the same group, but this is Comparative Genomics Reveals Convergent Evolution Between the Bamboo-Eating Giant and Red Pandas. Oh, is that the 2016 so, paper, I think? 17 is what I have. Okay, it's 17, who, yeah. Who, mm-hmm. Yeah, who, H-U at all, or others that, that wrote it. And talk a little bit about the thumbs, but what I also found interesting, not only this carries beyond just the thumbs, it's their diets and their digestive systems. So bamboo, you know, is is obviously their source of amino acids, fatty acids, vitamins, everything they need. And like you said, there's not a ton in there. So how do you get two carnivores that give up eating meat, give up chasing down animals. That have a digestive tract made to eat meat, smaller. Made to eat meat, mm-hmm. and they end up eating bamboo as their main diet. And how does how do their bodies utilize those nutrients? Because if we started eating bamboo every day, we would die. I think we would end up dying <laughs> pretty quick. <laughs> it's, there's nothing in there for us, not much. So they actually both had to evolve. Three genes. Here you go. So <laughs> Angie's like, I'm not going to read the genes. I'll just give you one. PRSS1 is a gene. That's that's why we don't read them because they're boring. You they know, are very PRSS36 boring. and C. I remember having B1. to memorize like all these genes for oh, reproductive no. evolutionary biology stuff. And um, yeah, I forget. Uh, I think I would make up little anacronyms and stuff. And once in a while, you'd yeah. get like a really good one. And sometimes they do, they are short for like what the amino acid or the protein's name is. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you get cool ones like hedgehog. (laughs) That one I remember. I know. That one you remember. That's a a good one. But yeah, those three genes in both species evolved 
and and they they differed, you know, so from other carnivores, so they can actually digest the dietary protein or the amino acids they get. And then there's other genes in there. I didn't go down the whole thing because, oh my goodness, people would show. Well, and I would admit, I, I, I glossed over a paper because it was getting late last night, but uh, about yeah, there's special similar. microbial communities that help digest the, the cellulose. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I don't but, believe they have, oh. in, they don't have enzymes to digest the cellulose. No, it's the. No, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah it's the. Uh, I'm just saying. Overall, the overall <laughs> reaching picture, the, the 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 mosaic we're trying to paint is giant pandas and red pandas. Even though they're very similar, very so similar, you would think they're relatives, and they're not. And they actually evolved that way separately, and they share very similar genes. Not only that ended up in these these pseudo thumbs, but also to be able to digest and, and eat bamboo. So just wow. Yeah. I was just wowed. Well, and then I didn't find any papers on it, but a little spoiler alert for the reproduction is from what we know with red pandas is that we think that they come into estrus like for similar to giant pandas, like mm-hmm. one day for once a year, you know, some real mm-hmm. goofy, not best uh, reproductive strategy. But I I don't think we've we've had a species this like closely related that or not closely related that oh my goodness I don't even know what to make make of this it's like you have two species that should be related they're so much alike but they're nowhere near being related sure that's evolution they that's what they needed to do to survive in their environment and once again I guess for my fun weekend readings maybe I'll try to find some reproductive <laughs> papers but I wonder if uh this bizarre re- reproductive strategy of only coming into estrus you know one day mm-hmm. once a year type deal that is well known and well documented in giant pandas because they've been studied so much and uh, they're able to do artificial insemination on them right. and things like that right. uh, I wonder if it has something to do with the climate or the seasonal uh, mm-hmm. nutrition of the bamboo or lack thereof. I mean, my goodness, if you don't have yeah. much, I mean, it's well known, you know this from all your research in um, horses with nutrition and uh, reproduction and livestock in general, that if they're mm-hmm. not having a good energy content, they're mm-hmm. not going to, they're going to have a lower reproductive output, right? They're not right. going to be able to get yep. pregnant, yep. things like that. So maybe I have no, I'm just totally, this is why this podcast is fun. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be from the reproductive strategy that's somewhat similar as well as uh, you know they don't they don't come into estrus as often, but it's still being studied yeah. because they're uh, they haven't had quite as much attention as the giant panda, of course, as far right. as right. Um, figuring out their Focus. reproductive yeah. uh, reproductive system. So yes, funky funky business. I love it. It's amazing. Oh, it's nuts. It's nuts. That was fun. It was fun to, to like read that stuff. I mean, people are like, are you kidding me? But yeah, it's fun for us. <laughs> it's fun. So, all right, just to wrap up evolution. I mean, there's two subspecies. Again, this was been debated for a long time, but a recent paper in February of this year came out, another genetic study that showed that there, there actually is two subspecies. There is the Chinese red panda with his Alaris styani. And then there's the Himalayan red panda, which is Alaris fulgens. And so they believe there are two separate subspecies. Yeah. And then just like, you know, science, 
I, this probably this probably frustrates some people, and I think it probably doesn't help with the people that are somewhat anti-science or things like that, but it is always evolving and it is changing. I mean, with mm-hmm. coronavirus, we're learning new things yeah. as we get more data and more numbers and things like that. And uh, I think it's an interesting process for people that to, to see it in real time with coronavirus, how we're learning as we go. And it's, mm-hmm. oh, it's so frustrating. I know when you're told one thing and then it might change, uh, but that's what scientists do, right? They we question, we challenge each other's hypothesis and we always want to get more data and more numbers and use evidence-based reasons to make practical suggestions on how to stay healthy or things like that. But Chris, to your point about two subspecies of red pandas, a recent study in 2020 about red pandas and their DNA samples in China and the Himalayas that were separated by a river suggests that these two subspecies should actually be treated as distinct species. Okay. Okay. So it 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 ebbs and it, it ebbs and it flows as the more re- the more information we get out there. And um yeah, uh, it's believed that this Brahmaputra River is a natural barrier barrier between the Himalayan red panda and this the Styanes or the Styans red panda. So subspecies, distinct species, it's, they all need to be saved regardless, in my opinion. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Last question. What is the largest animal of the Himalayas? Currently? Yeah, currently. Mm. Well, I want to say, uh, do tigers go that far north? Yeah. Okay. It's bigger than a tiger? Yeah. <laughs> it's the largest <laughs> animal of the Himalayas. I don't know. Uh, well, I need more hints. <laughs> it's not the Yeti <laughs> or whatever. This is like the, like the abominable snowman. It's like, yeah, okay. Not that. Okay. That's not real. All right. It's one of your favorite classes. Let's do charades. I can see your face. Let's do charades. A moose. An elk. No. Moose. Moose. What is a moose doing in the Himalayas? I'm sorry. You're not the best charades partner, my friend. <laughs> no. In the Himalayas. I know. Well, I was I was getting I was getting okay, caught okay. in the moment. There you go. An elk or a deer. Moo. Oh, a cow. <laughs> Cattle. What kind of cow? What kind of cow? It's a special cow from the Himalayas. Oh. It's a three-letter word. Starts with. Yeah. Sounds like. Yes. Awesome. A yak. Chris, Himalayan. FYI, I'm picking (laughs) Pip or John for my uh, partner. Yes. No. That was the biggest moose antlers on your head possible. Well, I'm looking at this huge picture, like six feet at the shoulder. They weigh like 2,000 pounds. The, The wild yak. And it's related to the domestic yak. I just saw it. I was like, oh my goodness, Angie will love this. We well, I'm dying to do point. yaks or muskox, but you're making me wait yeah. until you think it's more of a winter species. Well, so. muskox is winter. We could do yak in here soon because they're pretty cool. I mean, they're huge. There's the Himalayan wild yak. It's it's a monster, huge animal, about 10,000 mature adults. So they're vulnerable, but uh, they are they are up there. Now, just a couple things on red pandas. They can live as long as 23 years. Average, I read, was about eight years in the wild. Uh, 
Yeah, eight years, you know, 14's so. high. And then I thought the longevity record was 21 years at the okay. Rotterdam Zoo. But okay, maybe. It yeah, might be updated, it, yeah. One, one size, yeah. Now, this is a, a horrific sight. <laughs> the predator. So yeah, two of the world's cutest animals. One of them's eating one. I know. So the red panda is getting eaten by my other favorite from the Himalayas. Snow, the snow leopard, leopard, yeah. Yeah, uh, snowies, go catch a, a hoof and horns thing. Um, <laughs> go catch some of Angie's favorites. Yeah, so that's their, their major predators. We talked about, I know you want to dork out a little bit more on bamboo. We, we, we kind of covered it, just low nutrition, high fiber. Yeah. In there. Well, so they're yeah. similar to the giant panda. They can't digest right. cellulose, so they have to consume a lot of bamboo. But they're also smart about it. They eat parts of the bamboo that are more nutritious and are more easily digested, like the shoots and then the leafy components. And so depending on what season it is, sometimes they have more nutrients and more energy. And then other parts of the season, they're going to obviously not get much nutrition. And because of this, they'll spend on average, 13 hours a day eating and looking for food. Mm -hmm. And in the winter, when things are less nutritious, they can lose up to 15% of their body weight. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And I think that it's also important to know what is unique from red pandas and giant pandas. Obviously, tons of stuff is unique. But uh, they red pandas will also consume berries and blossoms, bird eggs, and small leaves on other plants. But researchers mm -hmm. do think that the large majority of their diet uh, is or should be uh, bamboo. Yeah, yeah. Now, I did read, you know, we transitioned into behavior, but they, you know, in, in very cold temperatures. I mean, these, you know, they, they like, I think, 50 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit is what I read. That's kind of the temperatures they prefer. But when it does get cold, they they don't really hibernate, but they do go dormant, right? And then they'll come out and eat when they need to. But, you know, they're mainly what, what is that word? The, the night and dusk? Yeah, crepuscular. John says I always there say you it go. wrong. But uh, nocturnal. They, they basically yeah. are going to be active um, normally during the nighttime and at dusk and dawn, mm -hmm. which is why it's another hard animal for researchers that are trying to do population counts to, to find. Because not only are they active when a lot of things are sleeping and it's dark out, but they're also solitary. Uh, they usually don't come together unless it's it's a breeding season time. And they're up in trees. P uh, red pandas are excellent climbers, and they spend a large majority of their life arboreal or eating and sleeping and nesting in these evergreen or coniferous forests. And so they're they're up there. And they're really skillful climbers, acrobatic climbers. They they love being in the trees and they're really cool when they actually descend down a tree or down a limb. They're really good at it. They go head first and they're very they're very very flexible and that's why one of the reasons the supposable extra false thumb helps them grip onto the branches as they're climbing around. And so in trees they're they're pretty good at climbing. Uh but when they are on the ground, they're a little bit they move a little bit slower and they kind of have this uh you know, slow gait uh, or wobbly kind of gait, if you will, when they're walking. But, you know, they can trot and they can move out if they want to a little bit. But 
because of their diet and not having a lot of energy from the bamboo or things that they eat, they are one of my spirit animals in that they like to lay around and sleep a lot. Sleep all day, yes. Mm -hmm. Not a bad gig. And they will will sleep in the trees. And so there's adorable pictures um, on the internet or on YouTube of them sleeping. And they're pretty cute. When they, when it's hot, they sleep like super stretched out, like just like laying over Mm -hmm. a branch or two uh, and rest. But when it's cold, it might be even more charming because of that fluffy ringed tail that we mentioned earlier on the podcast. The tail acts in two ways. First, it helps balance them as they're moving around the trees and also feeding Mm -hmm. uh, uh, with a bamboo. It'll help act as help them balance while they're eating. But even more charming, Chris, is researchers think that the tail acts to help insulate them and protect them in the cold weather because they'll curl up into a ball and nestle into their tail and the tail kind of fluffs around them. And so Mm -hmm. it helps keep them warm in the colder months or when it's snowing and things like that. So their tail, besides being cute, actually has a lot of of uh, function, physiological function to help them balance and uh, keep them warm. And I don't know if we mentioned it early in the podcast, but their tail is like 18 inches, a foot and a half in length. Yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah big. it's big and it's fluffy, which helps mm-hmm. make them super mm-hmm. cute, but they, they use it and it keeps them warm. And one of the last behaviors that I stumbled upon that I just have to share with everyone because it's very, very endearing is usually they're hanging out, resting in, in the trees but they're often observed cleaning themselves, so licking their, their body, uh, their arms, and they wash their face with their paws. So that's probably similar to something you might see in a raccoon. And they love to stretch out and rub their back and their tummy against rocks and trees and, you know, just uh, a little self-massage, never hurt anybody. So you got to love their just their cute behavior. And once again, they are mostly solitary. And so they'll let the other red pandas know where they live by uh, marking their territory with urine and uh, a very subtle musk secretions from their anal glands, which once again, when they're rubbing too, sometimes that'll help, you know, they'll, they'll put their perfume out there for the world. And, and when they do come across each other and it's not breeding, so- breeding season, they're not going to really fight or do too much. They let each other know that, hey, let's not hang out right now and where they'll do like an arching their tail and their back mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they'll bob their head a little bit and, and emit a puffing or huffing sound. And sometimes they'll jaw clap as well. So they basically do a stance that's, I guess, tells the other panda that they're, this is their territory, but to me it's still pretty cute. <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay, <laughs> you're scary. I'm just like you're actually more cute now. Uh, <laughs> no, um, and they do some vocalizations. I do like a chirping twitter sound. Uh, I asked John about it. He said that Toby, with his English accent, he never really heard him twittering <laughs> much, but he yeah. did hear him like uh, making the huffing and puffing sounds. So. Okay. I guess Toby yeah. didn't have really a reason to chitter or twitter, or he did it at yeah. nighttime when he was busy, when only the zoo nightkeepers are around, right? Like, so, right. which was that's not true. John. That's so that's the thing is yeah. a lot of these behaviors we miss because they're a nocturnal or a crepuscular species. 
And just, you're saying Twitter, and I'm like, oh gosh, Twitter, you know, the whole thing. I just want to go down politics, but Twitter is an actual word that means a give a call consisting of repeated light, tremulous sounds. Yeah. Oh, I have a clip of it here. Do you want to listen? Okay. Yeah. A nice Twitter. That is definitely a repeated light tremulous sound. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Love it. So, um, so well, oh. well, that would sound like calling for a mate, right? Is that, I mean, you I got it. And that, that exactly. And that's where I'll, I'll have to, I'll text Jill when we get done with this podcast and ask her if she's heard the Twittering. Um, yes. Because, yes, that's, that's some, a noise they're going to make when they are courting one another, when male and female do come together. I think once a year, when male and female become less shy, uh, they'll come out to one another and their, their scent marking will increase so they can attract one another. And the twittering will be made by both males and females. And once a female decides that she likes a male, courtship will usually take several hours. But overall, uh, the interaction between the male and female is pretty short. It's usually less than 24 hours. And basically, males will compete for access to females. And so she can pick who she likes based on probably his smells and his twitters. And I mean, if it was me, I would I would want to know more about that tail. But that's just me. I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, and like I said, we don't, there's not a lot that we know. I read one article that suggested that they had a very short estrus cycle, very short window of reception, Mm -hmm. similar to giant pandas, but we still need to know more. And then when male and female do breed, they have a wide variation on their gestation length. It can be anywhere from 112 to 158 days. So that suggests to reproductive physiologists or researchers that they have delayed implantation, which is like the gym, giant panda. And that's where fertilization does occur. The egg develops a little bit, but then it goes on pause and mm-hmm. basically doesn't implant itself right away into the uterus like it does in most mammal species. And so we know that right, the bear right. species do this. And so, and Chris, but this is where they're, Red pandas are different than their the other family they're kind of related to being the raccoons. Raccoons don't, uh, at least as far as I know, don't practice delayed implantation or embryonic diapause. So, Mm -hmm. but it could also it can probably depend on their nutritious nutrition status and what in in the season and things like that. So, uh, we're learning more from them as. they are being bred under human care at some of these accredited zoos and there's a species survival plan, but there's still a lot we don't know. What we have learned though, thanks to these accredited zoos, is that the female will when uh, will become noticeably lethargic about six weeks before parturition. And uh, several days before she gives birth, she starts to nest. Uh, and I can relate to that. I remember like cleaning everything mm. and getting everything organized. Mm. Nesting, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think my uh, my mine was uh, not a few days. I think a few days before I gave birth, I was just like, 
Feed no, me ice cream. Moving. Put a fan no, you on. You were in the lab. I was you were in I, the lab. That is a funny story. I was I was in the lab yes. when my water broke. Oopsie. Uh, well, no, it wasn't. Well, it was a computer lab. It wasn't like I wasn't pipetting. Yeah, still, but still, yes, you I were, was in the building. Yes. And um, anyways, different story. Talk about insanely dedicated. Yes. Yeah, but I was still eating ice cream and putting my feet up when I got home. I wasn't oh. at that point. I I had already nested. But female red pandas will gather materials such as sticks and grass and leaves, and they they do they like to build a nest. In the wild, the nest is going to be in a rock crevice or maybe in a tree that's been hollowed out somewhere where they feel safe, right? Um, And when they do give birth, the litter is anywhere from two to four cubs. And when red pandas do give birth, uh, it's anywhere from one to four cubs. And red pandas are teeny tiny and super cute. They're about 100 to 130 grams at birth. Their skins peak. Uh, they don't have any fur on their feet, which is darling. And their their hair is actually woolly and gray when they're born. Uh, it doesn't turn into that the reddish, beautiful color. Uh, it starts to change when they're a couple weeks old. But they are they are needy. Their eyes and ears are closed at birth, and they don't open until uh, a couple weeks after they're born. And the female red panda is a very dedicated mama. She spends 60 to 90% of her time with her cubs. And she will slowly start leaving them for longer, going away from the nest to get food. Uh, But she always comes back every couple hours to nurse and groom them and also keep the nest clean. And little red panda cubs, which are pretty darling, aren't going to really leave the nest or the nest box um, for a a couple months, up to 90 days. And when they do come out, they come out at nighttime. So once again, it's hard for researchers to really learn a ton about what's going on in those early days. And the father, unfortunately, uh, daddy red pandas don't have an active role in the child uh, raising. But of course, the red panda mom is very committed. She stays with her her cubs and her young as they grow, uh, helps them learn how to be uh, red pandas, and they'll stick around and have a close relationship usually until they're like teenagers or juveniles, uh, close to a year old, basically until her next theoretical litter comes along. And then everybody decides, probably similar to parents with a college kids, it's, it's time to go. It's time to, <laughs> to leave the nest. Yeah, go, go, go. Mm-hmm. And yep. so... Young red pandas are going to reach maturity about at 12 months old or a year, and they won't reach sexual maturity until they're about 18 months or so. So they do have a a shorter generation interval, theoretically, uh, than a lot of species that we talk about. Uh, However, I think with a lot of times only one or two cubs are born and then they have to survive in the forest. Not all of them do, of course. Uh, And so it's not... They don't have that uh, repopulation mechanism that rabbits have or that uh, even raccoons probably have, mm-hmm. which is why we got to keep a close eye on them from a conservation point of view because there's not many of them left, right? No, endangered. And like you said, you know, at maybe 10,000, but as low as maybe 2,500, which is nothing. That is nothing. That is nothing. Well, it's no. Such and a small mm-hmm, population. And, yeah. And for the last of its kind, the last of its kind, like, you know. Yes, like, and that and that's one on. of the things is I I really think that there's a good amount of conservation eff- efforts. It's just they're in several different countries, and we've talked about that a lot right. in the podcast. Is it's 
it's all it's all sometimes hard to get the countries on the same page with conservation Unify, efforts. Yeah. But there does seem like in China there's 35 protected areas. Uh, India has 20 protected areas f- that are known uh, red panda mm-hmm. habitats. You mentioned Nepal. They're doing a great mm-hmm. job over there. There's five protected areas in Bhutan. Myanmar has 26 protected areas. So, you know, there's a lot, a lot of good things going on. But when the numbers are that low, we start seeing population fragmentation, genetic bottlenecks. How do they find each other? You know, they, they only come together for breeding. It's not like they live in these large family groups. So how, how do they, how do they, how do they get together? Right. If they're, when the numbers are that low. I mean, yeah, I know one of their biggest pressures is not just habitat loss, but the illegal pet trade poaching, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and they they're not supposed to, but they are still sometimes poached and or accidentally caught in other wildlife traps. Yeah. They might not want the red so, pandas, but they they happen to get in their traps, and so yeah, they end up getting them. Yeah, so. yeah, really need to to support them. So, who's out there fighting for red pandas that we need to uh, highlight? Well, Chris, I'm glad you asked. There is a group called the Red Panda Network. And they can be found um, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the major platforms. And their website is redpandanetwork.org. And this organization was founded by Brian Williams in 2007. And they're just known as a world leader in understanding red pandas and how to help protect them and their natural habitats. Mm-hmm. So they do research and monitoring. They help provide sustainable livelihoods for the communities in the areas surrounding there. They do community-based conservation and education and outreach, which, of course, we mentioned on this podcast earlier, is critical. And then they work with the trickier stuff like the policy and the advocacy of how to really come together as a group of community landowners governments, researchers, educators, and all of this, how to work together to basically adopt policies that will help protect pandas and their habitats. So their website's amazing. Uh, we'll put it on our show notes. They have, uh, they do a lot more than I'm able to describe here in my one or two minutes mm-hmm. that I get to talk about the Red Panda yeah. Network. So trust me, following them on one of the social media feeds. If that's the least thing you do, you will thank me later because it's really informative and they do a great job uh, sharing with you and bringing red pandas into your living room and getting you excited. And if you are a red panda lover, they have amazing ways that you can help contribute not only to their work at the Red Panda Network, but just in general of how you can help red pandas in the wild and I also say, too, when uh, accredited zoos open back up, which hopefully will be soon, go check out Red Pandas. If your local accredited zoo has Red Pandas, um, I guarantee you they will not disappoint. They are just beautiful, beautiful creatures and really fun to watch. And you can always think of Toby with his little English accent and his top hat as he is uh, very agile climbing down a log and up into trees. I I dork out like I dork out every time we cover a species. It's like that's the one I want to go see at the zoo next or on out in the wild. Been looking for robins all week. Have yet to see one. Hopefully I will. I want to order some uh, binos so I can start bird watching. But you know, 
it's just, yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. They're and amazing. I think that's a, the great thing is, uh, we all need some uplifting and fun and maybe charming creatures in our life right now. And I know the Robin was really helpful for us to, to talk about them That's last cute. week and now the red panda. And so, like I said, fill your, fill your feed with some red pandas and some of these organizations uh, like the red panda network that are helping fight for them. And, uh, and it'll lift your spirits as well. Yeah. All right. So conservation tips this week, it's tourism, Angie, we know, you know, not lately, but it will, Travel will open back up eventually, but tourism specifically is the world's largest industry with ecotourism becoming one of the fastest growing segments within that, right? So when I think of Nepal, I think of, I want to go and support them for ecotourism. You know, I want to come and let them know I'm coming because you support your animals. I'm making you in my top five list of the world spots. I want to go, you know, to help ecotourism. So, of course, travel is very carbon footprint heavy. It just is. You know, that's the problem with it. But, you know, I just want everybody to go plant trees, offset your carbon footprint, and then travel all you want, right? I, I know that's it's not as easy as that. But if we planted tons of more trees, we can offset some of this carbon. But here's some things you can do to reduce your carbon footprint or carbon emissions when you do travel. And I'm going to put this link on the show notes, but there's called the International Ecotourism Society, T-I-E-S, has an online directory for searches of, of certified hotels and lodges that are like accredited ecotourism hotspots or destinations. Okay. So everybody should be using T-I-E-S ties, the International Ecotourism Society, but they will actually show you some, some hotels or, or areas that are like very eco-friendly. And that's who we need to be supporting, but with our dollars. When you fly, fly direct if you can. Okay. It might cost you a little bit more, but it's going to be less of carbon emissions, you know, because takeoff and landing is like where we use the most fuel. When you get there, use local or public transport. Angie talked about in our, gosh, this was back in our... Um, not Chihuahua, <laughs> I think Chihuahua, Chile, uh, the, um, the furry little cute little chinchilla, chinchilla. things. Yes. Chinchilla. Look at you with your dad brain. That's rare. <laughs> there we go. Dad brain. Hey, after, you know, we were talking red pandas, but you, Angie talked about, you, you know, riding in the buses in South America, you know, seeing the countryside, interacting with the locals. That is very eco-friendly. Do that. And use, way use more those. affordable. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, you know, staying in hotels that are friend, friend, eco-friendly, like I said, the, the ties or some other things you can look for. There's Starwood Hotels and Resorts uh, has been working with Conservation International. Marriott International, so Marriott Hotels, uh, is working very hard to reduce the company's carbon footprint. So those are just some tips when you travel. But go support ecotourism. The animals need it. Mm -hmm. You know, the environment needs it. That that money you spend there uh, helps, like especially with Nepal and places like Madagascar, South America, all these places we're going to go visit. But, you know, awesome species. Like, wow. Just wow. It's so cute. So cute. 
Yes, Chris, it was such a good week learning all about red pandas and loving on them. Oh my gosh, the videos are amazing. And thank you to everyone listening. And you guys are all education and conservation heroes just by learning and sharing this information. So that's what we have to do. We all have to come together and uh, get everyone excited about red pandas and help protect them. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Are you looking for a podcast your whole family can enjoy together? Uh-huh. Check out Culture Kids Podcast. Our adventures will ignite your curiosity for culture, traditions, languages, geography, and even pop culture with interviews from guests all over the world. Through each episode, we aim to help children become empathetic, creative leaders in their communities and help them see the beauty in our differences. And that's Culture Kids Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.